Hello and welcome to this edition of the Faber Podcast. My name is George Miller, and later in this programme, I'll be talking to Richard T. Kelly about his new novel, The Possessions of Dr. Forrest, which, in the words of David Peace, drags the Gothic novel kicking and screaming into this new century, replete with its own horrors and demons. My first guest today is poet and Faber poetry editor Matthew Hollis, whose first prose work is an account of the last four years in the life of poet Edward Thomas, who died on the first day of the Arras Offensive, on Easter Monday, 1917. Edward Thomas was born in London in 1878, and after coming down from Oxford, earned his living as a hack writer of biographies and travelogues, and as an acerbic literary critic. Such was his influence that the Times called him the man with the keys to the paradise of English poetry. And yet in 1913, when this book starts, Thomas is in his mid-thirties, still prone to bouts of depression, and has not yet begun writing poetry. It would take his friendship with American poet Robert Frost to encourage him to commit his thoughts to verse. And in the space of two brief years, there would come a great flowering of the poetry that seemed to have been accumulating unacknowledged inside him. A body of work that has been described as the hinge between the old and the new worlds, and whose admirers have included W. H. Auden, Philip Larkin and Ted Hughes. I began by asking Matthew what it was about Edward Thomas's life and work that had tempted him to write his first prose work. Well, actually, it was the story, or the thing that attracted me to the book, which is probably not the fact that I write poetry, publish poetry, and edit poetry. It was the story, it was the remarkable story of a man that was constantly struggling with depression that crippled his adult life. And he was a fact writer, producing... 24 books um, and maybe 3,000 reviews before he'd ever written a poem. And really, at the, at the end of his wits, um, unable to find a form and format that seemed to justify his talents. Uh, and one day he meets a young, relatively unknown American poet called Robert Frost, who just moved to London. And the two of them, over Frost's book, form a friendship, and Thomas recognises Frost's outstanding brilliance, which the other critics weren't doing at the time. And Frost recognised in Thomas the poetry that he hadn't yet written. And the two of them have an extraordinary friendship that changes both of their lives and in many ways changes the poetry to come in the 20th century. And I, I think what I really wanted to do was just share that story and try and tell it as clearly and as effectively as I possibly could. And there's a, there's a whole milieu, isn't there? A whole literary scene that you're evoking, which was based not very far from where we're sitting today, around a, a poetry bookshop. That's how you begin the book. Could you can tell me about that, that, the, the nature of the literary world that you, that you try to explore. 1913 was an extraordinary time in England, not just in poetry, but suffragettes were taking up direct action, unionists were organising strikes, the agricultural labour force was disenfranchised, Ireland seemed to be on the point of civil war. It was an extraordinary time, sometimes said that had the First World War not come along, uh, something might very radical have happened um, in England at the time, and the poets themselves were having a a time of radical experimentation. And it all organised around, or much of it organised around, this fantastic place called the Poetry Bookshop that opened in the first week of 1913. And it was a, uh, a place where you went to buy your latest poetry books and find out what was going on. It was a place that you went to hear readings. It was a place in which poets were published in a magazine and books. And perhaps best of all, after they got too drunk to go home, they had two floors and dormitories where they could sleep it up upstairs. And it became an absolute centre of activities which began perhaps harmoniously and very soon ended in squabbles, even to the point where one young man, um, known to many of us as Ezra Pound, 
was so fed up with some of his peers that he actually challenged one of them to a duel. And what, what kind of literary currents, you said we were sort of in the immediate pre-war era, what are, what are the literary currents that are sort of eddying around the poetry bookshop? Well, I think there was a feeling that Victorian England was exhausted with politically and in um, literary terms too. And by that I mean that um, these slightly grand imperial poems that perhaps was represented by Richard Kipling or something like that, that had seemed to speak somehow for the empire about values of public school and uh, stiff upper lip, and technically very often stuffy forms of poetry in a way. I think those were thought to have been tired and outmoded, and, the, and, the, and a young generation of poets that included the sick crown, but also Rupert Brooke and Robert Frost. Uh, Yeats was older, but he was very much involved in the London scene. T.S. Eliot would be passing through London very soon indeed. Robert Graves was published there, and so on. Sue Wilfred Allen, all involved with the poetry bookshop. I think they felt, in, in Pound's words, that it was necessary to make it new. And they did so in rather different and sometimes quite radical um, experimental forms that, as I say, didn't always agree with one another, but it did make it a tremendously thrilling time for new writers emerging poetry. As you said at the beginning, although Edward Thomas himself at this stage wasn't a practicing poet, he was very much a, a playmaker in the literary scene, the, term, time, the Times referred to him as the money of the keys to English literature. So what, why was that? What, what was it about his, um, his reviews, his, his literary personality that gave him such importance? Well, he was a fearless critic. I think that's the key thing. He was fearless. And he was a man that, in a way, kept his own constituency, though he knew many of the poets personally. Uh, he was never afraid when his friends gave him manuscripts to tell them exactly what he thought of them. He hurt many of his friends' feelings along the way by doing so. But he was a critic of huge integrity, and a very brilliant one, too. He could send up the literary establishment with the likes of Rupert Brooke, who got a terribly hard time in reviews of his first book. But Thomas realised that what he was doing was um, essentially a cry of youth that was a very important one. And he sent up his um, conservative colleagues very wittily by saying that Rupert Brooke should be read by anyone over 40 who has never been under 40. Uh, he also took on a review of the most popular poet of the day, which was an American called Alan Wilcox, still hard to say. And uh, he read the review ironically, and he ended up praising her for having, quote, a light sympathy with all sorts of ideas. A light sympathy with all sorts of ideas. I mean, absolutely withering, very witty and very funny. And he also managed to identify the brilliant Celestial Pound before anyone else did, really. Um, and was an early champion of Walter Delamere and W. H. Davis, and as I say, really, um, the first person to give weight to the new work of this young American called Robert Frost. And of course, we can all think of latter-day examples of, of brilliant, very sharp, sometimes acerbic critics, who themselves are not practitioners of art, and sometimes difficult, isn't it, to go from being that kind of critic to being someone who will expose themselves by, by putting poetry or whatever in front of the reading public. I suppose that's true, but what was clearly going on in Edward Thomas was that he was finding his way to poetry even then when he was working on his prose and prose criticism. And I think he used the arena of criticism to, to work out to sift through what he thought was valuable about poetry. And when he does meet Cross, and the both of them have particular ideas about how rhythm and cadence and what Frost calls the sound of sense should direct the energy of a poem, Thomas himself had been having exactly the same ideas for 10 years and been saying so in his reviews. But he'd, he'd taken criticism to work it out, whereas Frost had taken poetry. And did it also, in addition to his own working through, did it also take Frost to catalyse 
his emergence as a poet. I think it certainly did. Uh, famously, the two of them spent much of 1914 together walking through the fields of Gloucestershire where Frost was, was living. Um, and on these walks, what Frost liked to call his talks walking, uh, they put them many, many miles, sometimes um, up to 25 miles in one day, uh, which was a lot for Frost, and he used to complain about that, but that was nothing for Thomas, and he did it fairly regularly. But they were talking about ideas about poetry as well as the war, and their theories of design of scent, the poets they liked, and there seems to be no doubt in the story that Edward Thomas gave Robert Frost his latest prose book, which was called In Pursuit of Spring, and Frost supposedly thumbed through it fairly casually and said, well, the poetry is already there. You just, just have to go back and declare it in verse form in exactly the same cadence. And that's pretty much what Edward Thomas did. And that is quite an astonishing process, isn't it, to see it happening. You also quote his notebooks from the, the famous day when he goes through Edelstrop, which later turns into probably his most famous poem. And already some of the imagery, some of the rhythm is already there. And it's, al it's almost like seeing something emerging, you know, seeing the verse emerging from what is latent in the prose. And I, I don't think I've seen that quite so dramatically demonstrated before in another poem's work. I think that's right, and that's what we were saying a moment ago about the poetry finding its way up and welling up, bubbling up through the prose criticism that he was writing. And throughout his life, Thomas was a keeper of notebooks, and when he walked, he would jot down the landscape around him, the, the wildlife, the flowers, whatever he was thinking about at the time. And that material often had many resources. It went on to become his, his typographic prose books that he was commissioned to do. Sometimes he did three or four a year, and he wrote exhaustively of this. But also he went back to use those same notebooks, but sometimes even the same published prose sources, to find material from his poems when they came. And when they did come, but golly, they came quickly. Yeah, I was going to say, um, because there was this long gestation, perhaps even subconscious, when he does become a poet, he is fully formed remarkably quickly, isn't he? And then there's a sort of outpouring of poetry in a, a short period. That's right, well, he's 36, really, when he attempts his first serious poem. There have been earlier attempts and bits of juvenile and university and, and little bits, but really, uh, when, it, when it starts, which is in December 1914, um, when the war is just a few months old, there is a watershed, and he writes 140-plus poems in practically a little more than two years before he's killed. I, I loved the remark that his friend, Glenna Fargen, made about this transition from not being a poet to being a poet. And she says, he's not a different man. He's the same man, but in a different key. And I thought it was a wonderful way of expressing it, because you sort of, you sort of see this depression that has dogged him in some, in some way alleviating because he now has this element of poetry. And I thought that sort of shift into like he was a very kind of expressive way of, of conveying that. I think that's true and he does, something does completely change in him that is certainly about the outpouring of poetry and it goes on to be about the war too because he's a man that has felt hopelessly out of control of his own destination as well. And when the war comes along, he is a man that is an anti-nationalist. Uh, he falls out with his father and one of his closer friends for refusing to say that Germans are worse people than Englishmen. And he says that he has no, he does not grow hot with love of Englishmen. And he's, he's, he's very angry with the, what he sees as the racism and the jingoism in the English press. Um, so he's, and at a time when there was no conscription also, he was a very unlikely candidate to go to war, but he felt constantly pulled towards it. 
And the two forces, the denial of the poetry and, as it turns out, the arrival of the war, do something rather remarkable to his spirits. And that's not to say that his depression leaves him forever, and certainly there are many moving letters from France where he's clearly very miserable and looking forward to the end of the war and coming home. But something does shift in him, as Alain Fulton beautifully puts it, the same man in a different key. But clearly, he was a difficult man to live with. You mentioned that when we first meet him at the beginning of the book, he's a, he's a hack writer, he's unfulfilled, he's suffering from depression. But also, I was very struck by the fact that he spends remarkably little time at home with his wife and, and family. He's, he's got a very peripatetic lifestyle. What was the, the nature of that lifestyle? What was, and what was driving him away from home? Two things, really. One of which was employment, that Edward Thomas relied on the um, employee of London's literary editors for his work, mostly reviewing, as I say, the seven commission books. And each week he had to make what he thought were kind of groveling appearances in their office for, for the work. So his, his life was always satellite around London, and in fact the first 20 years of his life were in London, or nearly 20 years. So for that, he liked his time away, and uh, for his writing, he liked to work in the study away from home because of the pressures of family and noise. He had three children. So it's partly that, but it was also partly that he was having a difficult time at home. His depression was such that uh, when it overwhelmed him, which he had often done since university when he was an undergraduate, he would often take it out horribly on his family. Uh, his long-suffering wife, Helen, who adored him, would often be the front line of this attack. And sometimes his children too, and he, there were some terrible dinners where he would seem to go to his children to tears, and there were dinners also where he would publicly humiliate Helen in front of friends. And he loathed himself for it. He couldn't help it. He was absolutely tormented by this sort of grievous depression that plagued him. And he genuinely thought at these times that the kindest thing he could do was to remove himself from these people so he couldn't hurt them. And he did go off for considerable time. Sometimes he'd just walk for a day, sometimes he'd be away for weeks. But by 1913, when this book starts, he's more or less not living at home with his family at all. And he does seriously contemplate suicide and almost sort of enacts it at one point early in the book, doesn't he? He does. He thinks about it many times in his adult life. And there is uh, a very moving episode where his wife Helen watches him go to the chest of drawers where she, knew, she knows that he keeps his revolver. And she watches him go up the hill on the shoulder of Mutton Hill, uh, up into the East Hampshire hangars above his house. Uh, and she knows very well what he's going to do. And Thomas himself fictionalises this story, or so he says it's fictionalised, uh, in a short story account. And what seems to have happened is he takes a revolver into the woods and um, tries to go through with the act and is in some way disturbed by a man walking his dog and seems to be so humiliated by the episode. And... Uh, in a way, having been discovered, that he doesn't go through with it. And he comes back down the hill where Helen greets him at the door and says simply, shall I make tea? And he simply says, please. It's also the case that on the day he met Robert Frost, he spent the night before with another poet friend, Walter Delamere, telling Delamere about his suicidal thoughts. And on the day he meets Frost for the first time, he's carrying in his pocket what he ominously calls his saviour, which he'd been out to purchase that morning, which is almost certainly seems to me a poison, possibly a pistol, but probably anything that's, that's likely to do him self-harm. So it's a terrible time for him. But the arrival of Robert Frost does rather extraordinary things to his life. And there seem to be moments in his past, like unresolved moments, that he keeps coming back to. For example, there was an instance of a walking race, which 
he took part in at school. Did any say why you think what happened and why you think that stuck with him? Why it, you know he couldn't put it behind him as well? Well, perhaps no poet since Wordsworth has walked as far as Everton was walking. As we were saying before, it was a process of composition for him and also gathering material for his works and, and life. But his passion for walking began at a very, very early age. And as a child, he would spend all his time not on the streets of London, but in Wandsworth Common, imagining that they were the, the countryside, learning his skills, in a way, from Richard Jeffries and the writers that he was fascinated by. And at school, during the school sports day, he was by far and away the best walker and would leave the rest of the, the pack behind. But there's a story he tells when leading the school sports day walking race um, a few hundred yards from home, he imagines that he hears a boy coming up behind him, cheating, possibly running. And Thomas is so overwhelmed and frightened by the prospect of being overtaken somehow and not achieving the thing that he'd probably presumed he would, that he throws the race and he feigns a stick and he falls down on the side of the grass. And he leaves thinking that that was a more honourable outcome than having lost the race. His father, of course, does not agree and thought it was an act of cowardice and accuses his son of doing that, of, of, of being a coward, in fact. And that charge of cowardice is something that stays with Thomas through his life. And in fact, he and Robert Frost have a very powerful episode with a gamekeeper when they're out walking many, many years later, in which there's a sense, a suggestion that the same charge of cowardice comes up again. And Frost goes on to say it's one of the reasons that Thomas went to war. But he was also haunted, I was struck by this too, by the loss of a book that he'd been given as a school prize. And the book was called The Key of Knowledge. And again, in retrospect, in his mind, it seemed to loom very, very large. It seemed to be another thing that he couldn't sort of put behind him and relinquish. And I think it's possibly one of the things that fuels Edward Thomas's poems for us as modern readers, too. I'm trying to think about why a poem like Adelstrop remains so important to us. And th that sense that you get both in Thomas having lost this book, The Key of Knowledge, being his first school prize that he was given, and the title itself is, 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 seems to be very important and significant. And he loses this book. And he spends much of his adult life thinking about the effects of that and what it was that he lost. And this, this sense of trying to retrieve something in a different space and time that I think a lot of his poems touch on as well. And they seem to move across time and space. And they often seem to get in, particularly like a poem like Adelstrop, seem to suggest that the senses are capable of travel across time and space in a way that many of us are probably hypnotically drawn by, even if we don't vocalise it or necessarily understand it. I think that ran through, ghosted and haunted Thomas throughout his life. Now, an another thing which clearly plagued him for, for many months was the decision whether to go to war, what his, what his feelings about the war were. And he talks about growing into a conscious Englishman. So what, what, were, the, what were the things he was wrestling with during those months before he enlisted? Well, one of them, to some degree, was Englishness. He grew up with one Welsh father and a mother who was half Welsh, half English. And though he was born in London and visited Wales only on holidays, he felt a, a calling. He felt very in sympathy with Wales and Celtic literature, as he referred to it, at the time. And in 1908, uh, when pressed on the point, he once described himself as um, five-eighths Welsh. But something happens in the war that changes his ideas about it. For one thing, he, he didn't really approve of nationalism. And I think if you asked him today, he wouldn't have really been interested in the question about whether he was English or Welsh. And in fact, he once said that his countrymen were the birds. 
he was against such um, modern ideas, and actually he probably would have considered himself uh, a Briton, something much more ancient. And some of his poems talk about the badger as being an ancient Briton, and I think he, sent, he connects himself much more with that. But when the war comes out, he, f he f uh, breaks out. He, he realises that many of the things he's taken for granted that would be the landscape in which he walked and loved, that he shared with Frost, that he wrote his books about, and that he would also write his poetry about. He realised that it was under threat in a way that he had perhaps not conceived upon. And he challenged himself about the question, well, what would he do if called upon to defend it? You know, would he do anything at all? And it took him a long time to wrestle with that. He wasn't a violent man, and he wasn't a nationalist. He didn't agree particularly with the war. But he realised that something that spoke entirely about him and his life and that mattered enormously to him was under threat, and what would he do to challenge it? And I think that's the moment when he starts to feel he's growing into an Englishman. And by this time, Robert Frost and his family had gone back to the United States. And something I didn't realise was that, that the very famous Frost poem, The Road Not Taken, was written for Edward Thomas in the particular circumstances of his vacillation of what to do about the war. I found your, 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 your pages on that vacillating. Well, that, that's a, an extraordinary thing, isn't it? Because here's this poem that was recently voted uh, America's favourite poem, and it seems to speak to everything American. It seems to be set in New England, and it seems to be about one person choosing their own destination and choosing the path they're going to take, and that will make all the difference in, in the line of the poem. But the story behind it was nothing of the kind. It, you say it was written by Frost for Edward Thomas, because when they were walking in Gloucestershire, Thomas used to say that he'd like to go this way because there was some bird's eggs or some wildflowers he'd like to show Thomas. And then a uh, sort of frost. And when he got there, the nest wouldn't be there. And he would sigh and say, oh, I'm really sorry, we should have gone back the other way. And, and he would chide himself heavily for it. And Frost just thought this was a hoot. Uh, and Frost um, sent him a poem that, um, in Frost's eye, was uh, a poem of mock seriousness about Thomas's inability to choose. But Thomas took it rather badly. And he thought it was about his inability to choose between poetry and poetry. It was a key. Uh, Critically about his indecision to choose by going to war. And in fact, the poem becomes a kind of turning point in their friendship. I mean, we, we've, we've touched on the, on the friendship with Frost a number of times in this interview, but I mean, so looking at it head on, was it, was it really the, the, the determining relationship of Thomas's life, you know, the, the one which, which nourished him most as, a, as an artist and a, and a human being? I think it was. I really do think it was, because I think Frost unlocked in him the confidence to move into the realm of poetry, which is something that was clearly apparently waiting for him, even if he didn't quite understand it. And what an extraordinary output he produced in those, in those two years. Really quite extraordinary. But I think it also alleviated his unhappiness with his other situations, whether they be at home, they, they used to talk about marriage and duty. And he found in Frost someone that he could just relate to. Um, in some ways, for the first time, they didn't need to always talk. They were close enough friends that they could walk in silence. And they mirrored one another. And Frost referred to Thomas as um, the pair of them being a pair of literary Siamese twins. Uh, they were often considered to look rather alike. And some people think some of their poetry is alike too. So I think it, I think it was the, the friendship that fundamentally changed Thomas's life. And Frost too. And Frost, of course, says that Edward Thomas was the only brother I ever had. There's, an, there's a fascinating literary might have been in the book when... Thomas is being trained before he goes to France. 
and that both he and Wilfred Owen are in the same regiment, the artist rifles, at the same time. And yet, as far as we know, there was no, there was no literary connection there. They, weren't, they didn't know what the, both of them were you know, on the verge of becoming significant poets. Well, at, at that time, which is 1915, both writers are keeping their, their work very much to themselves. Um, Wilfred Owen has written not very much work and of not very high quality at the time, but he's showing only a, a few close friends. And of course it will take the experience of 1917 for it to really explode open his poetry when he meets the scene. And Edward Thomas uh, is writing by that time, but he's disguising it from his um, camp, army camp comrades. And often when he's writing down his poetry, he writes it out as prose putting the stanzas in paragraphs and having capital letters just to mark the, the new lines and then sending off to his friend Ellen Lavarge for typing because he doesn't want his comrades to know that he's, he's writing poetry. So it's a shame because I do think if either men had declared themselves they would have certainly met and got on extremely well and had so much to talk about. Their, their characters and their sensitivities I think were very similar. But Thomas was a map reading instructor and it seems almost certain to me that Wilfred Owen would have been in his class. And I would have thought the two of them probably met and discussed map making and many things of this kind after the classes without ever connecting that uh, the two of them were poets, because neither of them were really published their poetry then either, so they wouldn't have known this. But it is an absolutely tantalizing near miss, as you say. And how fascinating to think about the effect that Edward Thomas might have had on the young impression of Wilfred Owen at the time as well. And Thomas is not at this stage, well, is not on the way to becoming a war poet in the sense that that's a sooner own were. His his mode remains oblique. The war the war is there, it's refracted, but it's not it's not directly confronted in the way that other poets were to. Well most of Thomas's war, don't forget, was conducted in England. He enlisted in the summer of nineteen fifteen and he was in England until January nineteen seventeen, first of all, training as a map reading instructor, and then he joins the artillery. So he he never writes poetry from the trenches. In fact, his last poem is written in England before he departs. Whereas Owens was very much based on the trench warfare, and Owen was in the trenches. Thomas was in the artillery, so he was a little bit further back. And actually, Thomas's poetry is unusual for that, because most of the poets that we do cherish from the First World War were trench poets. And it's interesting, because I think it reflects the tone and the certain kind of distance of Thomas's war poetry, that he might have done something like the artillery, which is set a little bit further back. But he's a tremendously good war poet. Much of the war conducts itself in the margins. The fallen tree that he sits on is in the field because a field hand has gone to war and been killed in France and can't remove it. The harrow is rusty in the corner of the farmyard covered up with tall metals because, again, the metals haven't been cleared and the harrow isn't there for, because the young man had gone off to France. And throughout his, many of his best poems, I think, the war is absolutely all around them, but he never mentions it. And it's, it somehow amplifies the effect for me sometimes. Matthew, what do you think the legacy of, of Thomas has been to English writers? I can put that large question to you. It's an interesting question because at the time Thomas was largely published after his death. He had a handful of poems published in England before he sailed for France. And when he was out in France, an anthology came out that had a display um, of 18 of his poems. And they got a good review and that was about the last thing he saw. So, and then his book comes out afterwards. But the friends that he had, apart from France, that saw his poetry whilst he was living, were fairly nonplussed by it. 
And in fact, the immediate reception of his book was mixed. I mean, some of it was very good, but some of it wasn't. And that's partly because he was out of keeping with his time. He and, he and Frost were. He wasn't uh, quite like some so-called Georgian poets. He certainly wasn't like the Imagist poets. He was not like Victorian poets. But he was a poet that seems to me to be ever, ever relevant today for two reasons, I think. One of which was the process of his composition, and the second of which was some of the themes that he writes about. The themes are, in a way, a little bit easier to talk to. I think Andrew Motion was the person that described it as Thomas as a hinge between the modern and uh, the Victorian era and our modern era. And that seems absolutely right. And his themes about ecology, his, his, he had an unrivaled eye for the English landscape at a, at a time of um, irreversible change. And he also had a fascinating understanding about the relationship between nature and human beings that said his Georgian poets didn't always have. They tended to kind of preserve and pickle their subjects. Thomas didn't. He understood that he wasn't the same as them. His course of action affected them. And that seems terribly timely today. But there's also something about the way his poems and the syntax are so unusual that when you read his poems, it makes you think as if he's thinking them as you read them. They seem to be turning over in his head. They seem sometimes to be almost incomplete. They're not, they're not punctuated by big full stops in the way that sometimes Frost's are. Frost often has a line where the, the line itself is a unit of sense. It might be ten syllables, and it starts on the left-hand side, and it finishes on the right-hand side. Thomas's tend to tip and tumble over the line endings that make, for me reading them, feel as if they're in his head and they're in my head. And it means you carry them around with you as if you're still thinking of them. They haven't quite come onto paper yet, and they haven't quite been finalized. I think that's one of the reasons why he remains fascinating to so many people today, that it doesn't date. It seems to be in a perpetual present. Matthew Hollis. Now All Roads Lead to France is out now in hardback. My second guest in this programme is Richard T. Kelly. I interviewed Richard in the very first Faber podcast, when his huge debut novel Crusaders came out. That was an ambitious state-of-the-nation novel set in the northeast in the mid-90s. He's followed it up now with a chilling tale set in the present day, which pays homage to some of the great 19th century classics of Gothic fiction. When successful but increasingly discontented cosmetic surgeon Robert Forrest goes missing one summer evening, the police find no evidence of foul play. It therefore falls to his childhood friends and fellow doctors, Gray Lochran and Steve Hartford, to conduct an investigation of their own into his disappearance. This will lead them into a series of increasingly troubling encounters in order to uncover the full horror of what happened to their friend. I should warn you that, although we try in this interview not to give any plot spoilers, attentive listeners may pick up some clues about Dr. Forrest's fate, and may therefore prefer to listen to it after reading the book. I began by asking Richard to tell me about the appetite for the Gothic that he developed in his adolescence. I did have that kid's interest in horror and supernatural and the childish desire to confront myself with the worst things that I could imagine or, or, or hadn't previously imagined, if you like. And, and that goes for all the sort of, you know, grotesque and gory pop culture. But I, I mean, to be honest, the things that have stayed with me more were, were things I encountered on the page in, in the sort of late Victorian Gothic novels that I think most readers do discover quite early. That's Bram Stoker's Dracula and Mary Shelley's Frankenstein and uh, Stevenson's Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. I probably picked them up because I'd seen the Hammer Horror film or the Universal Horror film or whatever. But but they had a um, uh, the great thing is and this, this is a, this is a great thing about literature. They were obviously better. <laughs> they they, they um, flowered in the mind in a way that was uh, 
better even than some of those very fine film versions but the the, the quality of the of the the horror uh, and the enthrallment of it was just infinitely greater and so th- those books have been with me just as you know uh, as much as albeit in a different compartment to the sort of the other uh, slightly more uh, heavyweight 19th century books i I also claim to love. I presume it's no accident that your three doctors are Scottish. Yeah, well, I think Scotland is the spiritual home of the Gothic in these uh, British Isles. Um, I think people uh, know Jekyll and Hyde, even if they haven't read it, and, and surprisingly, many people haven't actually. But as the classic account of a you know a, a, a man's dark side, and also of a, of a place that has a double side to it too, the, the dual nature of Edinburgh. Old and new town, the idea that a city itself and a society might um, encourage those kind of, of ghosts. The famous, what uh, Hugh McDermott and others call the famous Caledonian anti syzygy, the, the ability of the Scots to hold two things in their head at all times. <laughs> so, um, yes, uh, undoubtedly. One should also mention, too, uh, a lesser known popular work, but one that's just as influential as Jekyll and Hyden's. Uh, James Hogg's Confessions of a Justified Sinner, which is the other great, I think, statement of that that uh, dual mindedness. And also, if if it's no accident they're Scottish, I guess it's no accident they're doctors. There's something yeah. particularly potentially overreaching, maybe, about the medical profession. It's in the the DNA of the the Gothic, uh, certainly Gothic, as in the late Victorian Gothic, that, that defines what we think of as the Gothic. I mean, Frankenstein comes a little earlier than that, but as we know, the, the enduring power of that work, and it's just been revived again to, to great acclaim and interest, is uh, is a parable of of science and what are the boundaries of science. And the same themes are there in, in Jekyll and Hyde, the, the to a degree, the idea of transcendental medicine uh, as Dr. Jekyll calls it because he makes this extraordinary compound uh, <laughs> through chemistry that that brings this man out from inside of him. So m- medicine and science have always tested the boundaries of, of, of what a human being is. And obviously in our age of stem cell therapies and radical cosmetic surgery and so forth, they continue to do so. So it's an obvious place. I think to be, if you're looking for those metaphors in a present day setting, surgery and so forth. And in a way, I feel uh, I could have written a different kind of book in which you know, gene therapy would create its own set of horrors a la Frankenstein, but I, I went in a sort of, a, uh, you might say, a Faustian direction to find my horror. <laughs> and your your medical impulse is kind of split in three directions, isn't it? As I say, there are three doctors, and one of them is a plastic surgeon, so concerned with, with beauty and perfecting the, the outward form. One of them is a psychiatrist, so concerned with the life of the mind. And the third is working in pediatrics, pediatric, pediatric mm. surgery. Mm. So three different aspects of, of modern medicine reflected in them. Yes. Well, I mean, I, uh, as a journalist by nature, I did a lot of, res- even though I knew this book would be very fanciful, I did the same amount of research for it as I would do on anything, as I did in a way with Crusaders. Because I wanted to know what these people are like, because they are, I think in our minds, quite, you know, distinctive professions. And, and I did discover in a way, just as with, with Crusaders, I found that, you know, within the Church of England, there are some very distinctive uh, schemes of, of, of thought and temperament with, with uh, the different uh, traditions within the faith, uh, within medicine too, within the callings as a, as a strong caste system, I found, you know, you know, all these bright people go to, to medical school, 
feeling a vocation or a calling, but they, once they find what they want to do and what they're capable of doing, they become, they follow very different paths. Certainly the attitude of surgeons towards every other type of clinician <laughs> is, uh, there's no question that they're the dominant dogs in the pack. And if you're a psychiatrist, by God, you might as well um, be uh, scrabbling for leftovers in their minds because it's seen as being, you know, if, if you uh, do your curing by the edge of a blade, as it were, you're seen to be um, in the front line. And if you're trying to unpick the mind by drugs and whatnot, then you seem to be in a rather desperate version of social work. So, yeah, I found all of that you know, in, you know, eminently inspiring. And these three men have reached middle age. They're, they're all school contemporaries and friends. And they've reached that that midpoint in the in, mm. at the Dante's middle of the forest, haven't That's they? It. Where things no longer seem clear and yeah. death doesn't seem quite such a, a remote possibility. Yeah, they're all coping with it in different ways based on their, their sort of different strengths. The paediatrician, Dr. Lochran, is seen to be, I think, probably the most stalwart of the three. He's got a very rooted attitude to life and what he does. His, his particular form of medical service, you know, performing these difficult procedures on very small infants and children with, you know, p- parents waiting in, in desperate states of anxiety in the, in the waiting room. There's a sense that he's a big enough man to have, have taken on that burden in life. He's the friend you would want He's, he's almost like a sort of father figure, isn't he, in the, of the three? His friend, yeah, his friends sort of bashfully or otherwise think of him that way. It's like, where would they be without him? And I think a, a lot of us can recognise that in our own friendships. There's always um, someone that you know would be your, you know, safe port in a storm and the person you would call if you were absolutely up against it. And that's Gray, Lochran, but it, he, no more than any of us, is... Um, uh, safe from the existential gloom that, that uh, can creep in at a certain point. And so he's feeling that in his own bluff way. The other two characters, Dr. Hartford is seen to be in, in, in a marriage that's, that's not worked, has difficulty relating to his children and difficulty above all in, in his profession of psychiatry. You know, he's given to dark thoughts about whether psychiatry has really moved on from the application of leeches when it comes to trying to to see what's going on inside the, the mind of a schizophrenic. So he has that that gloom. And Dr. Forrest, whose disappearance is the inciting incident, he's seen to have got himself in a world of trouble. Sailing through life slightly, or so it seemed, without dependence and, and, and with a an almost arrogantly uh, superficial attitude to uh, how he conducted his life because he had seeming wealth and a, a bevy of attractive female companions and whatnot. But... Uh, it's suddenly revealed to have all unraveled very quickly for him. Hence his friends wondering what exactly it is that he's done. And um, in, in, in the Gothic style, you don't have an omniscient narrator. You have a narrative which is composed of diaries and letters and yeah. journal jottings. Yeah, well, that's a very much a debt of love to the, the classic Gothic novel. Uh, anyone who has read... Frankenstein and Dracula and Jekyll and Hyde will be aware of the, the brilliant and fascinating construction of those novels. Jekyll and Hyde, it, it's most interesting the way, because people who only seen the movies imagine that it's a first-person account of a, of a doctor's experiments, and of course it's not. It's, it, Hyde uh, is, a, is a figure who's only seen for, for the, the longer part of the narrative through Jekyll's close friends, who are wondering what on earth is wrong with their friend. Uh, Dracula, of course, is similarly composed by letters, a, a, a psychiatrist's phonograph recordings, a captain's log, you know, and 
And there's something beautiful about that as a way to build a novel because it inherently uh, destabilizes the story and keeps the reader on their guard and makes you wonder um, what can be taken for real and, and unreal. And it also allows all sorts of suspicions and ambiguities to creep in, in the gaps, if you like. So um, I wanted very much to, to build a novel that way and hope that the readers could be similarly you know, intrigued by that structure. You set yourself what seems to me a considerable technical challenge because as you mentioned in your reading, the confession of Dr. Forrest comes as the final third of the book and leads the reader to completely reappraise many of the major events which have gone before it in the, in the narrative and yet that narrative still has to, has to hold. Mm. Yeah, well, again, I, I think that is a nice way to tell a story. Um, I mean, it remains to be seen how uh, readers will feel about it in the present day. But I think I, I get the sense from early readers that, that they um, that's a conceit that they almost like best of all about this sort of a book. The technical trick on the page is making sure that both all, all sides of your story match up. And I, I, I frittered a lot of hours, as it were, because the book is, of course, every, every, every part of the book is dated. Um, I had to make sure that I was in, in sync uh, with my uh, multiple narratives. But I, I do think it's... <laughs> it's probably a spreadsheet program you can get for that, for, for troubled troubled novelists. Well, I, I know that I often resort to, to yellow post-it notes on, on a wall, and, I, and I'm reassured, having read enough of those uh, magazine features about how writers work, that they, it's, a, it's a common and uh, inexpensive way to do it. Now, Eros is a big part of the Gothic. Tell me how you, tell me how you approach that sort of side of this story. There is another... A text that probably deserves mentioning in that gothic uh, canon, which is Oscar Wilde's picture of Dorian Gray, uh, because with midlife, for a lot of men, I think they take the generalised view of, of George Orwell that after the age of 40, you've got the face you deserve. But our, our culture has changed, and, and, and there have always been men who have a different view about making a good appearance and, and being you know, prideful about their looks. And... Um, and Dr. Forrest is one of those people too, and as someone who's kind of very clearly romped and, uh, uh, through um, a good deal of, of physical uh, hedonism in his time. And the, the, the sense of that decline, the sense that that world is slipping from him in, in midlife and that women now look through him where they once looked very directly at him, is slowly revealed to ha- as having been a large part of the, his, his desperation and, and what uh, he desires to, to claw back, even by um, diabolical means. And I think his is a drastic case, but uh, we all have a little bit of a shared feeling of what that might be. <laughs> you know, that, that, um, that sexuality is a very powerful driver, you know, and we expect it to go away with, with maturity and, 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 and sense and, <laughs> and good sense, but it's persistent. You know? I mean, it struck me reading it that, that part of the pleasure of the book is sort of being teased by by you, feeling that you, you're dimly grasping something that might be happening, but not entirely being certain of it, and then getting to the end of the confession and, and things slotting into place. But, but existing in that uncertain zone for much of the book, like the characters, is actually where the sort of pleasure of the reading comes from. Yeah, I would hope so. You know, I think that the reader... You you always I think, understand implicitly in the conception of a in writing of a novel that the reader is quicker than you are and is always going to be about five paces ahead in a default way. So it's um, how do you get on par with them? 
but also you do want that that pleasure which i think the reader can share of an, an insinuation uh, and an idea that dawns upon them and therefore they get to share a little bit in that um sense of uh, of realization and, and and subtext and insinuation in a sequence in the novel the, these two doctors go out actively to try and find out what's happened to their friend forest because they know the police won't and what happens instead is that they find themselves being bedeviled by these bizarre incidents and rather often menacing and threatening strangers who, who intervene in their lives and they, they can't believe in their own rational minds that what they're encountering is has anything to do with their friend Forrest and yet the reader will see that uh, having taking all the evidence into mind it may well be that, that Dr. Forrest is a good deal closer to them than they, they actually thought. And lots of mirrors in the book too, from from Forrest's large cheval glass to, to the speculum. And lo- I suppose I suppose that's <laughs> that's that's you know addressing the fundamental question of who we are. You know, when we when we look in the mirror, who who are we? Yeah, I mean, I mean, you've not got a better uh, metaphor in in physical existence in the mirror. I think on that score, um, and they are endlessly fascinating and. and uh, uh, Forrest is a, is a seems to be a, a sort of collector of, of uh, antique mirrors and whatnot, um, and the uh, the idea of the encounter with the mirror belongs so strongly in this fiction, whether it's Dracula's shrinking from the the glass to the the, the famous uh, encounter that that uh, Jekyll first makes with with Mister Hyde, where he can where he realizes that this this too this reflection is himself. And again, I, 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 I do owe this debt to, to Cocteau. I, I'm sure someone else did it, but in, in the wonderful film he made of the Orpheus uh, myth, uh, he created this uh, angel of, of death who you know, moves freely between the, the underworld and, and our world through the surface of a mirror. And uh, uh, I, you know, that is a marvellous idea, and I thought it's simply too good for me not to appropriate <laughs> Tell me about the soundtrack to this book, Richard. You, you've written about that online, um, and music is quite important, isn't it? Both it sounds when you're writing it, but also in the in the fabric of the book itself. Well, again, I think it comes back to the the the, the, the rich, fertile cultural ground of, of what we think of as the, that that fantasy Eckler and, and uh, the early twentieth century before the war. Let's say that um, just as in art. Um, they were, they were new and explicit and, and, and fragmented and unnerving uh, images being painted. Uh, music was having this remarkable transformation also. And some of the, the, the key figures in, um, in early 20th century music are, are in this book for that reason. Uh, they're there partly because it's the music that I listen to uh, when I want to when I want some help into sinking into that kind of mood, um, I think Bartok, whose who string quartets were, uh, you know, such a, a classic piece of early modernist composition before he got, you know, increasingly radical. And then Ligeti, who in, in the 50s and 60s you know, completely broke out of uh, traditional composition into what he called these sound masses, uh, incredibly um, texturally uh unnerving pieces um, and it's the kind of music that I want on when I'm writing I, I, I can't say anything useful or rational about it because uh, I, I just haven't got the tools but I, I'm sort of vaguely reassured that, that very few people can you know the, 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 there's a great saying that you know that the, the, the only valid music criticism is, is in music you know and if, 
you want to explain an A2, do you sit down and play it again? Uh, I'm just glad to be a sort of um, consumer of it. It, it. it helps me in that way. Uh, and also, I, I always have to say this before I get too rarefied about it. When I get stuck writing and, and that stuff uh, seems a little too high flown, I just put Led Zeppelin on like everybody else just to get the blood beaten around the body one more time. I, I thought it was interesting, Richard, that for all the, how shall we put it, all that Dr. Forrest goes through, that language remains. He retains, if there is a way in which he retains a sense of self through all his vicissitudes, it is through the ability to master and control his language, control his narrative. Mm. Is that, I mean, is that is that significant, do you think? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, if... If, when the day comes that you can't explain yourself to yourself, then you're, you know, you're that's that way madness lies. And uh, I mean, one could one could imagine that you know, that kind of fragmentation would be a possible outcome mm, of what he's gone through. Absolutely, absolutely. But there's a part of him. I think there's an honourable tradition in this sort of literature, and this, is, this comes back to why doctors, physicians, or scientists are the right protagonists for it. They can, in, in, they can, they have a capacity that we lay people don't to accept themselves as a work in progress or an experiment, if need be. I've heard it said by uh, some people I talk to in the profession about how you, you, you can never leave your experiments alone; they always come back to you. And uh, in the same way, I think there's something. Uh, a really good surgeon has a. Has a has the chip of ice in their heart I think that Graham Greene said the novelist ought to have they have a uh, they have a quality of dispassion that is essential essential to the bedside manner essential to the ability to to, to cut into flesh with a scalpel to cure so um, Forrest is, is made of that stern stuff and uh, begins uh, and so therefore um as he, as he puts it himself, when it comes to the idea of sound, mind, and body, you know that his body <laughs> is, is is void of form after a while. But it, but in, in his head, it's it's sweet reason down to the, the bitter end. And of course, some of his changes give him, uh, even if briefly, uh, great pleasure before the uh, uh, the horror returns. Richard T. Kelly, the possessions of Doctor Forrest is out now in paperback. That's all for this edition of the Faber Podcast but there are lots more interviews with Faber authors in the archive on the website at faber.co.uk forward slash podcast. And if you've enjoyed this interview, do sign up for the monthly Faber podcast by visiting iTunes and typing Faber in the search box in the podcast category. I'll be back again shortly with a special interview with Michael Frayn. So until then, thank you very much for listening and goodbye.